Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, unless, you know, you vote not for Trump in November and make your pol- your politicians do actual work and reform things and defund police and all that and, you know, things that sound flippant but shouldn't be. Because Mark's right. We're, it's, we're screwed. Uh, but hey, I'm Robert. <laughs> and I'm Sarah. And we're here to talk about Pump Up the Volume because that's what you do. Uh, no, you, you talk about movies because it makes life a little more pleasant. And we talk about movies and we, the two of us, we inherently talk about the issues that they bring up because that's how we think about movies. And I hope you do too. And hopefully in doing so, we get a little bit less screwed, a little bit more unscrewed. And <laughs> that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. But Mark might be screwed. We don't know because this this segment begins where minutes thirteen to sixteen with his father coming upstairs to find him, and so we're all in his father's office. Mark is in there. He just found a letter of some sort that he's stuck under his shirt, or he sticks it under his shirt now. I forget when it happens as his father's approaching, and we see. The set decorator seems to think that Mark's father used to be a very specific kind of hippie. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Um, this scene, one, it's just an interesting visual, seeing Mark behind his father's desk and his father approaching, almost like you could imagine 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future, what Mark would really be like behind that desk, because his father never thought that he would be the one behind his desk. <laughs> well, yeah, his his father has that desk and still has on the wall Grateful Dead posters and others like 60s psychedelic posters, in addition to what look like diplomas and certificates and family photos. And the guitar is out of the case. Yeah, he's got a so, guitar in the yeah. corner, <laughs> out of its case, next to a little couch. So he maybe sits over there and strums on it, still thinks he's some sort of rebel. And... But, yeah, one of the things you see really big on the screen for a moment is Grateful Dead's poster for their, what, 1969? Yeah, 1969. Uh, Ox- I know, I was about to pronounce it myself. Oxo, wait, Oxo-mo, Oxo-moxoa, I think is how it is. Damn it. <laughs> I looked up how it's supposed to be pronounced and then I got it wrong. I know, I definitely should It's not a real word, down. so. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the poster for it is right by the do- entrance to the thing, and right under it on the floor is a poster for uh, Family Dog Presents Concert um, poster. It's from 1967, and there's some other ones on the other side of the room. I'll get to when I get to them in my notes. So the father not only used to be interested in things like the Grateful Dead, he still decorates his office with them. Well, he did say in the last episode, right, that he could like money and prestige, but also what was his... <laughs> wording there he's when his wife challenges him and sickly says he's not the uh she said she said the man i married loved his work not power and money he says that's all right i still love my work and i love money yeah <laughs> so he still in his mind loves the things he used to love but can have the grateful dead as posters on the wall while also having expulsion letters in a folder which is for later but <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. If you freeze frame, you can read the letter already, but yeah, it won't come up until our next segment, really. 
he also has, since I deal with movie tropes as well, he also has way too many lamps. Yeah. There are at least three in this room. And that's not great lighting. Where did that <laughs> trope come from? It's one I never noticed until you mentioned it's, it one time. <laughs> I think it's just a lighting thing. It's because you need, in a movie, you need lighting on anything you actually want to be able to see because cameras don't pick up the natural light where everything kind of shows unless you do super bright lights. But when you're inside, that means you have to put lamps, especially if we might see the ceiling. You can't just put a bunch of things up above. And yeah. so it's, I don't know. I noticed it because of CinemaSins points it out all the time. Oh. <laughs> they especially went after the Twilight movies because I think her bedroom had something like 18 lamps in it or something like that. It was wow. insane. Actually, I have the notes for the other posters here. Uh, behind his desk, we have several posters in a row, including the Grateful Dead Skeleton and Roses Avalon Ballroom poster from 66 and a Bill Graham Avalon handbell, which I didn't recognize any of the names of, I guess, their bands that were on it, so I wasn't sure if it was in the city of Phoenix, but Avalon Ballrooms in San Francisco, if there was a band called Phoenix, maybe, and there were a couple other ones, but the font is so weird, and it's... Show it's, spent more time looking that up. Was it, it like a it's local... It's hard to read. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> that like a local concert, maybe, with a well, lot Aval- of small bands on it? It seems or? to be an Avalon Ballroom thing, which was big. Mm-hmm. His other, the Skeleton and Roses one is for when Grateful Dead played there, and they played there, like, for several nights... And it's in San Francisco, and apparently it was a big deal. Um, but it's the 60s. There were a lot of bands that were around and even popular then that don't exist and right. didn't retain their popularity. Grateful Dead still is, you know, they don't completely exist anymore, but their music's still around. I think the remaining members still tour. Yeah, I think, I think they still so, do, or at least did until very recently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brian comes up and asks Mark, you know, what's up? And Mark says he was just looking for some stamps. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's, it's believable. And so Brian gets to, finds him some and says, are you sending a letter to one of your friends back east? Mark, of course, as he is sarcastic and a teenage boy, says he thought he might send away for an inflatable date. <laughs> Which then gives, I know, an exchange that a lot of people love. Because Brian says, you know, one of these days you're going to have to watch yourself, young man. And Mark replies, I love it when you call me young man. Yeah. I feel like that's such a trope and a cliche as well. Like, I've heard that line over and over and over again. Like, kids will say. <laughs> oh, his response? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then we, then we get, yeah, Brian talking about when he was young, which whether or not we believe him or not, I don't know, but he says, you know, when I was your age, I was in all the teams and a bunch of clubs. Look, all I'm saying is that school, that school must have some really terrific programs. It's very highly rated. But given the posters on his wall and the guitar and, I mean, definitely the way they dress the character, he doesn't seem like the former athlete, like Jock from yeah, the 50s it was really or 60s. Odd. Everything we're told about Brian so far and, again, the posters on the wall, how the room was dressed, the music he used to listen to, kind of in conflict here. It's like, was he a young Jock who was in all the clubs or was he a deadhead? I don't know. <laughs> It's yeah. kind of hard to tell. And uh, if he was both, that's kind of an interesting story I might want to hear in yeah. more detail. <laughs> yeah. Mark responds telling his father, just save it for the masses. <laughs> the masses here. I find that very interesting and specific wording. He's just mentioning again his father selling out to consumerism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah his father is in a position of power where he talks to a lot of people. Like, uh, it's 
we'll get to in a second, but like, he has a deal with his parents on how they d- interact with him. Like, they're not his parents anymore, necessarily. Yeah, it, he has a very transactional relationship with his parents. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's there when it's there, and as far as he seems concerned, he'd be better off without any of it. And he, going back to, has the great, going back to it, he has the Grateful Dead posters on the wall, but the music itself has been commodified to just be an art decoration rather than a way that he's living his life. Yeah, although if these posters that he has, if they're the originals, they're <laughs> well, again, that's kind of the point. I know, they're, va- like, they're valuable and rare. But then, yeah, then maybe he has them because they're valuable and rare, not because they mean something for their the experience. Yeah, Mark turns to leave after saying, save it for the masses. And his mother has now approached as well and has stopped at the doorway. She brought her ashtray with her. She's still smoking, but she puts her cigarette down and actually reaches out and just, like, casually stops Mark from leaving. Which was nice because he doesn't fight her. She's not trying to like force him to stay, but she, he does stay. I don't. I don't know how much we get of their relationship in this movie. I know it, they talk at the PTA at the end of the PTA meeting later, but I don't know we get much else of them. But it seems like he gets along with his mother, and she's yeah. the one who's concerned about him more than the father. Yeah, he at least has respect for her. I don't see him talking back to her the way that he's talking back to his father. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Mark says, yeah, look, the deal is I get decent grades, you guys leave me alone, right? They don't respond, he leaves. And music kicks in before we cut to the front of the school. Yeah, where we're with Nora and Janie. Oh, you want to skip past the logo? Oh, I guess you should mention the logo. <laughs> yeah, well, you noticed something about the logo. I, I, I did the, skip past it when the, I watched uh, it. The HHH logo on the front of the school, especially the one on the front of the school because the way it's framed. We see it also on the Letterman jackets, but it's slight, the letters overlap slightly differently. But the one at the front is like 3D, silverish, and the way they overlap, it immediately reminded me of the like SS lightning bolts. And I don't, it's possible that's deliberate. Like that's what they were told to go for, for that logo, given what the movie's about. If not, that's a great (laughs) happenstance, because we're about to see that Murdoch does random locker searches on his own and takes things out of people's lockers, which is immoral, illegal, and problematic in other ways. And I believe that it's purposeful because everything, especially from every album that was chosen and or tape that was chosen and art on the wall, everything is very purposeful so far. And HHH isn't really a common school. Lo- like, I can't recall that being a common. No, it, it feels like <laughs> even if this is Hubert Humphrey High, even if the name of it is Hubert H. Humphrey Hyde, which it is, mm-hmm. it should be like just an H. Wait, would be their thing. wasn't the H and the Heil Hitler Nazi thing as well, even outside of the visual thing? Eight being the H being the eighth letter of the alphabet. That sounds like something of maybe. <laughs> yeah, going down a different rabbit hole. Yeah. But that is absolutely a thing. That's why and Nazis post eighty-eight or eight eighty-eight yeah, on the and internet. It's the letter H is associated oh, yeah, with yeah. Heil Hitler and Nazism. That, and it also is an interesting, I don't think coincidence, it seems like a deliberate writing choice, that though Mark doesn't call himself it much, Happy Harry Hardon is also HHH. A good one. Yeah, so it has to be on purpose. Yeah. That's too much coincidence. And it additionally, visually, when we the camera rises up from the sign, 
it is as students are arriving for school and they are raising the U.S. flag just like 10, 15 yards behind the sign. So the timing and the deliberate thing of the morning is definitely a thing. And then, yeah, when we get to Janie and Nora. Yeah. Are we going back to locker searches later? Well, the locker search happens later. We get Janie and Nora. Okay, so let's... And then... Yes, we are... Because we get English class first. Yes. We're in the scene with Nora and Janie, which is a pretty brief conversation. There, There is a great... I don't know if it was an acting choice by Samantha Mathis here or a directing thing, but when she's... Because Janie's trying to find out who this guy is. And uh, Janie insists all the guys that go here are geeks because Nora thinks this guy goes to this high school. And when Nora says, maybe not, my dear, she reaches out and, like, touches her friend's chin really, like, sweetly. And it was a weird friend move. But it's kind of cute because of that. And then Nora just kind of looks at her weird. Because then she says later, because the bell rings, Nora does, and walks mm-hmm. away. And Janie's just left by herself. She's like, later? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, her conversation ends odd and she points it out. And, like, another one we'll see with Paige later. Or is that, yeah, that's in this segment as well. Yeah, I think what we're supposed to get here is Janie's shift in thought or her change in that Janie also would have thought that all the boys were geeks, but now she's starting to become interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then we cut to English class with Emerson reading the last few lines of Mark's story. We don't really know what the story's about. Yeah, we just get that the logic cars question the few remaining death spurs. <laughs> Which I don't know what death spurs are or death spars or whatever it is, because I, I was trying to find a word that sounded similar that it was supposed to be and couldn't get it. Hmm. And it says they began to fade away until there was nothing left of them and they disappeared from the face of the earth. And the class is impressed. Nora is impressed. And they know it's Mark's paper, so Nora looks over at him. And so it's the first time she's paying attention to him, I believe. And... Emerson tries to get Mark to tell everyone what he was thinking when he wrote this. And he's his nervous, quiet school self. And he just says he wrote it late last night, as if he didn't put any thought into it. And he the bell rings, so he doesn't have to answer any further. Yeah. Mark interest Mark is interesting here in how he expresses himself non verbally. He's very closed off and tucked into himself. Mm-hmm. He's very, like, sl- Yeah, he barely looks up. Yeah. <laughs> I think he only looks up with his eyes. He doesn't raise his head. He, yeah, he's got a very specific sort of... I was going to say mousy. I don't know if we describe males that way, but hey, we should. Uh, mm-hmm. Mousy sort of thing going on. Yeah, it's interesting. We have the English teacher who clearly loves him. We have Janie who's clear, clearly interested, and it's not... Typical, like his nonverbal presentation isn't typically what people would be fawning all over. No, I mean, well, we can understand, I mean, Janie is interested in Harry, not Mark. Right. And Emerson is interested in the writer, not the boy sitting there looking down. And she then tells him that the clarion, the school paper, is looking for new writers, so she wants him to do more. I think it's interesting when... She says, that's obvious, it's practically a night book. Such- oh, no, no, that's a typo. Oh, okay. That's a transcript problem. She says it's practically illegible. Okay, but yeah, because tra- it's reading that again the transcript, the transcript I found, I found like, online that odd. I've been correcting has yeah. a lot of weird mistakes. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know how it did it, because some of its choices seem like someone deliberately typed them in. Like, every time he says hard Harry, it says happy Harry hard on. I'm like, that's not what he says. But huh. then it has things like that where I'm like, that wasn't 
a program listening to it and just transcribing automatically. But a person listening has to be, an, no offense to, well, no, offense to the person who wrote it has to be an idiot if they thought she said it's a night book. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's not a thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, she says it's uh, practically illegible. Like, you hand wrote you it. You hand wrote it, yeah, in the dark. So, then we jump forward to... Page. All the boys flocking around. Yeah, three guys swarming around Page outside, which she seems happy when they walk up. And then the one guy immediately starts talking about how he got a new Miata, and she should hear the CD player, and you'd see from her face she is not impressed by the car. Yeah. I don't think she's happy because they walked up, though. I didn't take it that way. She's happy until they walk up, maybe. Well, I think I th- I think the timing of it. It looks like she's happy that someone walked up to her, but then like once she realizes well, yeah. who it is <laughs> and what they're going to talk about, because then the other guy tells her that she should hear the CD player, and the first guy says the tennis team is throwing a party tonight. Doesn't invite her, just tells her there is, and says later, Paige. And the other guy says we'll see you there, and they walk away, and it's just like well they're gone, and then she has that face too, just like. What was that? Yeah. <laughs> she just stopped. She's by herself again. It was like, I think it was a few seconds long. It's such a brief thing, but. And like, we see that she's different. She's not the girl who's twirling her cat's whiskers on her bed with anxiety, even though I'm sure she still does have anxiety. She's very put together with pearls and the collared crisp white mm-hmm. shirt. And <laughs> she has a very specific image, obviously, that she wants to portray at school, and we see her here through the male gaze. It's really we only get her reaction or her thoughts based on how they're Yeah, she doesn't speak. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> three, three extras get lines. She doesn't speak in this scene. Yeah. She doesn't really speak much to her father. At home, she has her father coming after her, and yeah. at school, she has boys flocked around her who want things from her. Yeah. And... Then we cut from those three guys in Page to uh, three other guys in the shop room. Two in Letterman jackets are kind of messing around over basketball. And a third one who doesn't seem like he's the athlete type has uh, more of a nerdy look. Brings in a cassette tape and sticks it into a radio that's sitting there. And they're listening to... Actually, before we get to the song, I just got a comment because I find yeah. it weird. The guy who with the Letterman jacket... For some reason, I don't know if he's putting on an accent or if he has an accent, but he says, hey, that's my box. How's about asking, huh? I'm that's like, what movie do you think you're in? <laughs> <laughs> like, do you think it's a 50s film? What are you doing? I wonder if that's almost on purpose, because we keep getting this, like, 50s, 60s versus right. 80s thing. Yeah. So the boy with the letter midge- yeah, that comes across very boomerish movie uh-huh. type. <laughs> so... I, I don't know. And then Ice-T comes on, yeah. So it's a weird juxtaposition of yeah. that line reading. Well, maybe it's a purposeful juxtaposition. Right. In which case, that's kind of cool. It's just very subtle, because mm-hmm. it happens so so quickly. Just like with the HHH, it's subtle. They're yeah. not openly discussing that. He's, but he's the politest purposeful. guy that would in a different movie would be a bully, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's polite. Yeah. So, yes, they're listening to Ice-T's LGBNAF, which means... Let's get buck naked, and I don't know if we're doing F words on the show, but I'm, I'm sure. pretty sure we've already said them. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so, yeah. this is on the Power album, which Ice T released in 1988. One of the critic reviews I liked said that this album quote implicates everyone from radio programmers to the police and the decline of Western civilization. End quote. 
But here we get a bunch of, you know, white clean cut guys all suddenly gathering to listen to it because the lyrics. Yeah. And we have white consumption here of black violence and rap. Mm -hmm. And it's only 1990. So we see a lot more of that commodification of black violence in rap and being sold mass produced for a white audience throughout the 90s. Yeah, since. So the boys run from the radio. They disperse when Mr. Murdoch comes in. Oh, you gotta get Murdoch outside first. When he's with Murdoch he's is out, he's going through the locker, pulls out spray paint can. Donald, who we haven't really met yet, but we'll know him later, sees him, but then as Murdoch notices that, he also apparently hears the music from off, out of frame. And then we get, you know, the boys are dancing, and a whistle interrupts them, so they all back away, and we see them all sit down, we see the 200 Days to SAT's banner, which yeah, so is wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's wrong. We also, I think it's placed so it calls attention to the focus on scores as a measure of success, but I'm not sure why it says 200, like why specifically 200 days and also why it's wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if they chose this room because it had that banner already at the actual school, maybe, and it was when they were filming. It had 200 days or they didn't think about the schedule and it's not, and it's not, you know, February 2nd right now, Groundhog Day. Although, or maybe because it's Groundhog Day, this is just the same day all the time. It's always 200 days to SATs. They're always warning them it's happening. Maybe they have a countdown to the next year's SATs, just to yeah. constantly put it over their heads. And then Murdoch's uh, hand comes down on the radio to turn it off. According to his watch, it's only 7.55, so... Which is odd, because they've had more than They've already had an English class already. So it's an early morning English class. No wonder Mark wasn't really attentive or energetic. It's not because he's shy, it's because he's tired. He was up late. He's got a radio show. And everyone, of course, says, morning, Mr. Murdoch. Someone says, morning, sir. You know, they're very, apparently, we can, we can get the idea already that Murdoch is a bit of a, how would you describe him? I can't think of the right term, like a drill sergeant kind of nature. Like, he asks for things and people have to do it. Yeah, well, that was the older generation of, these are the rules, you're gonna follow them. That's how it was in, my house. I mean, I remember my father saying something like, this house isn't a democracy, it's a dictatorship. I make the rules and you follow them. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> Which, in this case, because we were just referencing the 50s dialogue, is kind of interesting because I already mentioned in a previous episode that the guy playing Murdoch played a character like the like leather-bound motorcycle guy in the beach party movies in the 50s. So he used to be on the other side of this kind of thing. Yeah. Going back briefly to the locker search and the generational differences, it made me think of how now in 2020 we've replaced locker searches with phone searches and mm -hmm. kids are living their lives. And all of us are now, or at least most of us are with the pandemic, living a lot of our lives online or more online than we used to be. So we're still searching, but in a different way and just how much privacy he should be entitled to, and should we be checking their phones, and was it right or wrong to yeah. check their... <laughs> or in this, in this specific case, it occurred to me, it's not illegal to have spray paint. And if it's in their locker, they're not using it. Yeah. Well, illegal and school rules can be two right. different Right, there could things. be school rules against them yeah. having it on school grounds. <laughs> but legally, is the locker school grounds? I don't remember how that works. 
It seems like it's in the school. Right, but there's a standard they have for that, which is why you can't do a locker search. One person going in up yeah. in the locker is because it's like a gray area. But what's in the locker is the students, even though the locker belongs to the school. So, but either way, Murdoch's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he doesn't care. He's the <laughs> He is the law, so he will do what he wants. And I think this takes us to the last scene. Well, he, there's a great reaction first because he says, I'm not stupid, you know, as he turns the radio off. And some of the students laugh. Yeah. So he's not taken completely seriously, even though they were quick to say, morning, Mr. Murdoch, and morning, sir. They laugh. Oh, well, yeah, that's typical. So You're, it's good. They're going to, to his face, respond respectfully so they don't get in trouble. But clearly they don't respect him because most people don't tend to respect authoritarian rule. Although... American politics in 2020 would lead us to believe that maybe 38 to 40 percent of us do respect authoritarian <laughs> rule, but want that type of. And I guess order. the rest of us are laughing yeah. in the background. Yeah. Which is not the best solution. Yes. Laughing <laughs> is a fair response to <laughs> horror and trauma, but but then how do you move past the laughter to? Do something about it or mm-hmm. take meaningful action. <laughs> Which this this movie does, I guess, show with the students uh, that increase is they're laughing a little bit right now. Later, they're putting graffiti up. Later, they're playing music outside instead of in a classroom. So there's an escalation of what their reaction to what's going on at the school. But then, yeah, we get to Crestwood getting her coffee. Yeah, and she has an interesting line here that the lesson of modern education is that nothing good comes easily. No pain, no gain. I'm like, why is education supposed to be painful? (laughs) Yeah. I love when it cuts. She's just talking. We don't know who to. It cuts. She's talking to Emerson, who's sitting there in the break room, and Emerson rolls in her eyes. (laughs) So she's kind of like those students laughing. She's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, so we definitely have the postmodernist Gen X critique of the baby boomer modernism of scores and quantification being important. This is where we see her talking about, is this the first mention of academic scores? Because that's part of what's, yeah, what's going to come up. So we see, again, this transactional nature of Mm -hmm. communication, but rather than transactional relationship between Father and son, we see a transactional nature in education. Yeah. Achieve the score, make the school look good. The school then, is judged on one category only, academic scores. Yes. Which is a good, actually it's a good, I mean, if we've heard her say, I would think one word earlier, so as an introductory line, this is a good sign of who Crestwood is. And at the end of the 80s here, this film, filmed in 89 and released in 1990, we have postmodernist critique of the of the 80s and of the previous generation money and scores were a way for those in power to keep power and also a way to gatekeep and keep others out oh yeah and also this money and quantification of education didn't solve any of the problems that mark mentions in the beginning. We still have all of them, but it was a very modernist idea. We'll, that we'll get more we into that actually things. in the next segment yeah. because <laughs> there's some specific dialogue that relates to it about the 60s. I, I think it's interesting because we talked about how there are no black students really in the film. I mean, maybe there are a couple in the background, but I don't I haven't noticed yet. 
but also that we could take that as a sign that Crestwood's already been doing. I mean, if it's February, they've been kicking people out for months. And if you're going by SAT scores, which are inherently, you know, racially divided as to who does well, that could be someone that they're getting rid of. And already. I would say not even racially divided, because that just makes it seem like certain races do better than others oh, no. without mentioning <laughs> that they're inherently racist. Right. So let's make that the, the test itself is prejudicial against people, you know, outside of, you know, the quote unquote norm background of, you know, white middle class America. Not even middle class. Middle class do okay, obviously. And that's part of the postmodernist critique of quantification is if we look at the SAT, who's writing those tests, whose mm-hmm. language are, is, or whose language and vocabulary are we deeming more important? Like people will criticize AAVE and fail to understand that AAVE has just as many grammatical rules as standard English, but you're not going to include AAVE on an SAT exam. Right. AAVE for anyone who doesn't know being African-American vernacular English. So, but yeah, we have the school and specifically the teachers, the older teachers like Crestwood and Murdoch, excluding any student who doesn't fall either into the what they want for academic scores, but also the behavior, the conformity that they want to see from the students. Yeah. We'll get an idea of more of who that is as the movie goes along, like who they choose. So far, we don't know it, but we've seen two of them. We saw Luis Chavez and Cheryl Biggs. And we'll get more on her in the next segment. Uh, in the meantime, Murdoch comes in because he has confiscated that tape and says, Excuse me, everyone, Miss Crestwood, you want to listen to this? It's the third tape this week. I can't believe it. He turns on the tape and it is a uh, tape from last night's show, or at least the show we just heard. I assume it was last night. And of Mark saying he's going to explode, take cover of Arizona, here I come. Which, aside from this being one of the times he's uh, pretending to masturbate, is a good line for their sort of what they think of him. Yeah. Because they think, yeah, he's something that's going to explode and ruin Arizona. Except Emerson and another young teacher think it's funny. And that's how this segment ends, is that the two young teachers are laughing. So, in the meantime, where else can we hear you? Life is a Playlist, and you can follow Life is a Playlist on social media. Two Minutes About Time, which is a Movies by Minute show about uh, the Richard Curtis rom-com. That is a good way through right now, but you can catch up. It's been pretty good. We had some celebrity guests, and we had Richard Curtis doing our intro, so it was we had a lot of interaction with people involved in the film. You can find that at Two Minutes About Time on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Speak out! They can't stop you! Find your voice and use it! Keep this thing going! Pick a name! Go on the air! Your life! Take charge of it! Do it! Try it! Try anything! Spill your guts out! Say shit and fuck a million times if you want to! But you decide! Fill the air! Steal it! Keep the air alive! And this show you can follow... At Pump Up the Minute on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Talk hard! Everybody knows. Everybody knows.